Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, Borough Talks, which is Borough Market's podcast. And um, I'm sat here with, I think, actually one of the very, very loveliest people in food and food writing, uh, an extraordinary generous soul, Georgina Hayden. Oh, Hi, Georgie. What an introduction. I can't even speak. <laughs> I feel really choked up. What an you introduction. Are. You are. I think you're one of those people who spread the joy and spread the love. Oh, thank you. That's a really lovely thing to say. I, you know, I think it's just a really wonderful industry industry to be in. I had to fill in um, some, you know, questions yesterday for an interview. And one of the questions was, you know, what do you like about your industry? And I just think Food World is, it's a really nice place, isn't it? Like, most people are just lovely. Yeah, I think that's really right. When I, because I used to work in theatre, and when I came into food, I was really struck by how collaborative Mm. it is, actually. And that sort of did surprise me a little bit because on the face of it, you think, oh, you know, food writers, everyone's after the same work, surely. But it's kind of, it's very, very much not. It's not. And there are some, you do come across some people who maybe aren't as generous with their um, platforms or their voices as others. But I think on the whole, like that's all industries, but on the whole, as my other half likes to remind me a lot, he works in the city, very different industry. He's like... Gosh, food people are just so nice, aren't they? Um, but it does feel... I think that comes from what it's about because food is just such a joyful thing, yeah. isn't it? The, the act of cooking, the act of eating, it's rarely a selfish, solitary So often about sharing, thing, isn't, it? isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. sharing, it's giving. You know, when we cook, we put our love and our heart into it and I think mm. that just comes out in the way people are. So um, thank you very much for that lovely introduction <laughs> and uh, I'll take that, thanks. <laughs> uh, proper biog, uh, briefly for Georgina. Um, food writer, uh, food stylist as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Often seen on Sunday Brunch, um, many food columns in different magazines and newspapers. Um, On the telly at the moment, doing uh, the Great Cookbook Challenge with Jamie Oliver, Channel 4. Um, And just about to release your third book. Yes, I am. It feels mad. Um, yeah. Yeah, books, columns. Like Actually, when I first started... I knew I always wanted to write a book ever since, you know, so I've been in the industry, been doing this for 16 years. And I always wanted, my thing was, I always wanted to write a book about Greek Cypriot food, my heritage, my family. Um, But I actually started in the sort of food styling way initially. That's how I got into it because I've got an art background and... You know, when I discovered that there was this job where people get to cook for a living and make the food look beautiful for photography and, you know, TV, I was like, wow, that is my dream job. You know, I get to cook all day, I get to eat all day, play with food and make it look good. Tick, tick, tick. Do you remember how you discovered that was a job? Yeah. So, um, so I, my family had a restaurant and we, our life revolved around this restaurant and I don't think, I que- I didn't realise that, and that sounds really naive and really stupid thing to say, but our world was so centred around food, in a way I didn't question that my love for food was anything abnormal. I thought that was just normal. So when I went down the university route and whatnot, I studied fine art because everyone told me I was creative. I am mildly creative. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and um, <laughs> But all the while, you know, I had a farmer's market stall 
when I was 18, making cakes in North London, in Palmer's Green. Yeah. 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 There was a farmer's market in the old yeah. car park. Yeah. Um, uh, I should say to listeners, George and I are almost neighbours. Yes, we are very close. <laughs> so there might be a few things where we kind of go, oh, you're there. Oh, oh that. that oh, place. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I, you know, and again, the penny didn't drop that not all 18-year-olds sit there reading food magazines and having farmer's market stalls. Anyway, went to university. Finally hit me in my third year at uni that my friends weren't in sitting there reading food magazines because Delicious had just come to the UK from Australia. Uh-huh. So Delicious had first come over and I became obsessed with this magazine. And I was just like, do you know what? I'm going to write to them. So I was in my third year. My tutor was incredible and he turned a blind eye. He was like, I was at Leeds. He said, go to London do this two-week work experience, come back, I won't say anything. So I did, and I just assumed that I would end up doing something like design on a magazine, you know, arty background. And I, you know, I'd never heard of a food stylist. I didn't have a clue. And I, they sent me on a photo shoot. Back then, I mean, I'm, a, I'm showing my age. It was Polaroids. You know, there was no digital. Yeah, I've yeah. still got the Polaroids. It was an Easter egg shoot. And I stuck them in my little workbook. And um, I just had this absolute epiphany at the age of, what was I, 23. I was just like, oh my goodness, there's this person whose job is to make the food look great. Um, So I went back to uni and I kept in touch with the people at Delicious. They merged with another publishing house, Sainsbury's Magazine, a few different magazines. And I got this phone call saying... We need a Christmas elf. And what it is, is every summer they need like just basically a runner to come and organise all the Christmas food for Sainsbury's magazine to make the little pamphlets you get in the supermarket. It was like 50 quid a day, hanging out in a fridge, walk-in fridge most of the time. I took my exhibition down in Leeds on a Monday, got the train home Monday night, started work on the Tuesday. And that is how I got into it. And I basically was in the publishing house and I had access to Delicious and Sainsbury's magazine. And I just basically worked my arse off. If anyone ever says, what can you do? What, how do I get in the industry? Work your butt off, right? Even if you think you know how to cook, whatever, it's all about showing you are willing to go the extra mile. It is competitive. I mean, now more so. But back do you feel then, that? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. More now, I think because of things like social media and the awareness. Like back then, if I said oh, I'm an assistant food stylist, I'm a food stylist, people be like, sorry, what is that? Explain. Whereas a lot of people are aware of what that might mean now. Um, and that was it. And that's how I found out in the industry. That's how I got in and then did a year there. And that's how I basically met Jamie Oliver's head, head food stylist. She poached me on a shoot um, and worked for him for 12 years. And it oh, went from there, basically. Um, and what stage yeah. was... Jamie Oliver and the Jamie Oliver Empire when you joined it? I mean, he was already big. So it was 2006 when I joined and he was, you know, 15 was established. He'd just done school dinners and he'd just done Cook with Jamie, which was the sort of white hard book, which was sort of around 15 Mm. a little bit. Um, And I joined just before Jamie at home, which I think a lot of diehard Jamie fans still see as his best ever book. Yeah. And, and I, I get that, actually. It was an incredible, it was an amazing time to start. Yeah. You know, we shot at his house. It was all seasonal. No one was doing that sort of stuff yet. Yeah. Um, you know, and I started out literally scrubbing pans in the pouring rain in like a shit, you know, like you start, you do anything you can. Mm. And 
And it was amazing. I feel like he was one of the first of the big names to really kind of go, guys, I don't do this on my own, you know. Yeah. There's a team and they are an incredibly talented team. Yes. You know, your lovely self, lovely Anna Jones, yeah. other people who have come out from that. But he he has been, it feels, so embracing of the other talent that facilitates his particular talents. T- totally. And I, I think he is... You know, we say about Fupi being generous, but I think he is one of the most generous people. You know, I now think of him as a friend. I think he's an incredible human being. I've just filmed this series with him. He is, he's an amazing man and he's so kind and he's so open-hearted. He doesn't see anything as a threat. He is, you know, he doesn't think that something will make him worse off. He's He knows, he knows how to do it. He's like, he's just generous with his time and his energy and everything. Um, and you're so right, you know, back then... You know, there are always people behind the scenes, everything you see. And he's just been really open about that. And I I think that's that's credit to him. And I think that's what, you know, to do with his success as well. Yeah. And your first book, did that come out while you were still working? Yes. So I was still working. Staring Slowly, yeah? Staring Slowly came out in 2000 and you're going to test me now. (laughs) 16. 16. Um, 16, three, done three in that time. Yeah, done three in Six years. That is some going, girl. Three and six years, yeah. 16, was it 16? Yeah. And I think I started writing in 2015. And it, yeah. And so I was still working there. <clears throat> I think I was part-time, maybe. So I knew I wanted to write the book. And I had this conversation with him. And I said, you know, I really want to write books. X, Y, Z. I'd been there for 10 years. And again, he was just like, okay, let's, well, you know, you can go part-time, make this work for you. And I signed a two-book deal. So I knew I had to write in Taverna as well at that point. Um, <clears throat> and... You know, behind the scenes, I had loads of personal stuff going on. I, I you know, I, I lost a child. I was struggling with facility. And he was, and being there, you know, I wasn't ready to go freelance. I, I felt like I needed, I needed to be looked after in that sense. And it, and it was a family and it was a place where I could sort of put my foot and my toes in the water and try and see how it would go. And I, and I needed that, mm. you know. I, and again, the world's different now. Writing a book, you can get a book deal, you know, and rightly so, from a strength of a very strong Instagram account. Mm. You know, but back then that wasn't the case and and it all felt very, I was very nervous, but... Also, it's a heck of a jump for anybody to kind of go from, you know, a job, an exciting and wonderful job that you're obviously enjoying, but to go from that into going, okay, I'm going to do something which is free. The the, the thing about freelance is you never know when, you never know when it's going to go away. Totally. And I can never lose that feeling about when is it going to go away. Yeah. Being being freelance is really, uh, it's not something that I jumped into nearly. I was so nervous. And like you say, even now, you take nothing for granted. God, I had to have a really boring chat. I've got this lovely new accountant, <laughs> but I am hopeless with stuff. He's like, how do you see yourself in the next amount of years? I'm like, I don't blooming know. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I have no agenda. Some people are so good at having plans and they know when to post on social media and they have these things in place. I'm just like, listen, if it happens and someone talks, I'm like, yeah, great. I feel like I'm just on this. <laughs> but I think your social media kind of... Uh bounces off that really really positively so it's Georgie Pudding Pie yeah Yeah, Georgie Pudding and Pie Pudding and Pie Georgie Pudding Pudding and Pie yeah and on Instagram you you, it sort of it feels this is a compliment Georgie it might sound (laughs) it hit me (laughs) it feels slightly chaotic yes Mm. (laughs) but I think that is really, really warming and welcoming. <laughs> I do mean it nicely. I really do mean it nicely. Thanks. Because I feel, 
<laughs> it feels, George is giving me a very strange look now. Uh, it feels like a lovely window into how you how you roll, how your family rolls, Bless how you cook you. and how you live. And it feels very real. Do you know what I actually do? Ta- I'm, I totally, I'm laughing, but I actually do take that as a compliment because, you know, I think, I think if I was more strategic... Uh, yes, I may be able to have more f- followers. I have a good amount of followers. Amazing. I've got over 100,000. That is great and that's lovely. But I don't, you, you know, I'm not living my life for those numbers to drive. And and of course, things like followers and exposure equal book sales. Obviously, you know, you and I both write books. We would love people do to read our books. Do they equal book sales? But do book? they? But do they equal book sales? And this is my thing, right? You have to draw a line. And I think for, for various reasons, I have a, a very... I, I like social media. I'm only on Instagram. And I do... It is chaotic because I am chaotic on it. And I'm very honest on it. And I'm not... You know, I'm not at all calculated. I think if I was, maybe I would have more followers. Maybe I'd be like some of my peers who have got hundreds of thousands, and and I would be posting every day at a certain time, and I would have newsletters. Well, I don't, I don't have the time to do that. I, I don't really want to be making the time. That's not where my, that's not what I want to do. And I, and like you know, I touched on before. I've struggled like the last, you know, eight nine years have been a real struggle personally, and things like for me having a family was all I wanted and finally being in this position where I have two little girls is and that for me is the is the biggest privilege and I, I'm, I'm not trying to do the parenting thing where you're better or she's better or he's better but for me I, I, ha- I can't lose sight of that and if that means being a bit more chaotic on Instagram and, and it being a bit more haphazard, then I'm fine. With How that. old are your little girls, Georgie? Four and one. So, you know, I'm still in the thick of it. I'm still breastfeeding. It's still chaos. There's still dirty nappies everywhere. It's a miracle I even get out of the house today. You know, <laughs> it is mental. And so in the midst of all this chaos, yeah. you've written this beautiful book. Yes. Nistissima. Nistissima. I um, said it perfectly. Thank you very much, darling. Uh, I got told off. You know Phil Juma at yeah. the market? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lovely Phil. I was doing a podcast with him a couple months ago and um, I was completely mispronouncing his cover. Okay. And he was so sweet about it. He only let me sort of get, well, you know, 20 minutes in. Oh, no. <laughs> he didn't really. Um, but, it's, uh, it, but I was really glad he did correct me because I think it's really important yeah. to, well, obviously, like to not wade through something, sort of yeah. you know, disrespecting and mispronouncing something. But something like that is different in different cultures, right? So we say, in Cyprus, we say gubez. Right. Oh, okay. In different countries, it's kibbe or kibbe. You know, like we yeah. have different pronunciations. So I, I think, think I got it wrong for everywhere, though. I don't <laughs> There might be somewhere. <laughs> I don't think I could claim. There might be somewhere. I was doing a particular dialect. I don't think that I mean, was it. You're a North London girl. Like you can, <laughs> yeah. It's a really hard one. And when we, when I named the book, I think this is like what I was saying before about my, I'm, I'm not necessarily the most commercially minded brain. So, and I think that's like we were saying about my social media being chaotic. And I think the same with the book, you know, it was a real hard one because I had such a strong idea of what I wanted from Nistissima. You know, I wanted to research and talk to people and make it as authentic as possible. But on the very basic level, it is a vegan book with vegan recipes from the Mediterranean, the Middle East. On on a sort of very surface level, if yeah. you don't know anything else about it, that is what it is. Yeah. Maybe I should have given it a more commercial title that's, you know, that's it's, a bit, it's a bit more one seal. <laughs> but... And, you know, maybe Nistissima is hard to say. I don't, oh, you know, no. I think it's fine. If people say it wrong, it really isn't offensive at all. It's kind of self, 
it's you know it is little you know it's, it's a it's a lovely word and it's a word which I feel sort of entices you into go but what is that yeah okay good well I hope and what, so. And so what is that what is so nasticimo is a Greek word and it is um the word we use for food we eat during times of fasting it is you know if food is nasticima or nasticimo so nasticimo is singular nasticima is plural if if a dish is nasticimo you can guarantee that it is plant based. Right. So that is if you go to Greece and Cyprus and you tell them you're vegan, most people will just stare at you and be like, don't know, don't know what that means. Do you want some lamb? Right. <laughs> but if you say I, I eat nistissimo, they know exactly what you mean straight away. And it's very specific in that it is the food we eat during Lent. So when I say fasting, whilst most people will automatically assume things like fasting or, you know, um, so that maybe the Muslim way of fasting or intermittent fasting, what I mean by fasting is the periods before big religious festivals. So today, it's really apt that we're chatting today because today is obviously the first day of uh, Lent in right. this country. Of course, yes. um, not for us, ours, ours is next week, Orthodox is next week. Um, but... That so that is the period, the sort of forty fifty days before Easter, the forty fifty days before Christmas, the two weeks before the Assumption of the Virgin Mary in August, every Wednesday, every Friday. Like, if you are, if you do it properly as like a proper granny would, you could eat this way around two hundred days a year. Like my wow. granny spends around two hundred days a year not eating animal products. Right. So it's a really big part of Orthodox faith, and the book. I was really, obviously, I have to explain that and I have to research the faith side. I spoke to monks, I spoke to priests, I spoke to grannies, I met some amazing contributors. And that is sort of the chunk of the beginning of the book. But then, that doesn't interest you, that is totally fine. You've got over 120, 120 vegan recipes. And I think the thing that I really found whilst I know the importance of eating this way in that part of the world was how easy it was to write I didn't have to struggle I could have written so much more Mm. like there are so many recipes if we look beyond our own culture that are just happen to be vegan and I think that's the key thing isn't it like if people are trying to eat more plant-based food for whatever reason whether you are vegan or you're religious or you just want to eat more veg you know, instead of trying to veganize familiar recipes, like instead of trying to make a cauliflower cheese vegan, it is what it is. Look to other cultures because there is a plethora, mm. there are a plethora of recipes that are just actually vegan by nature mm. and they are delicious. And that's really what this is about, yeah. isn't it? I totally. have to say, I think it is an extraordinary cookbook. Oh, I don't you. think it's like anything else and I think what you have tried to do what you have absolutely smashed is doing something which is really approachable for the modern home cook who wants to kind of you know spread their horizons about how they eat whether they eat meat sometimes or not or if they are already vegan or vegetarian to really kind of embrace different flavors and things and yet behind all that underpinning it are these fabulous stories and insights into I'm I'm not religious. Yeah. Faith is, you know, the the structures around faith are not something which factors into my life at yeah. all. I find it completely fascinating, the Amazing. sort of the romance of the stories almost around it. And I think I feel it underpins everything to be not just, in inverted yeah. commas, another vegan book that has so much mm. power. This is going to sound um, ridiculous in a way, but it feels like it has power kind of coming up through it because of the cultures whose stories you're turning. And I think that is an enormous achievement to do. 
honestly, I can't. I've, I'm, I've got goosebumps because that is. I feel like I want to cry because that is exactly what I want to achieve. I want to achieve something that is. It's not. It isn't necessarily. You know, if you have faith and you okay, buy, that's actually great. Crying. Because it was. Although I'm going to give you a minute and say, releasing a book is a very emotional thing. It is a very emotional thing. It is a very emotional thing. You put so much into it. Yeah, and it's been a really challenging time to write it. You know, I was FaceTiming. You know, people enjoy. It was during COVID. It was during lockdown. I wrote this during all the lockdowns. Whilst did you know what's coming? It was meant to come out earlier, but lockdown pushed it back a year. Really? Okay. Yeah. And I was pregnant. I was. You know, doing IVF, I was pregnant, I had a baby, there was lockdowns, and trying to get this book, trying to talk to people while in this time was, you know, it was hard. Yeah. That's why I'm crying. You know, there was, there's one amazing contributor, Charisse, who, oh, she's in the book. Her, we yeah. took a portrait of her. A gorgeous pic in the book. Beautiful. Yeah. And her granny, um, she, you know, she was Armenian. She was alive whilst we shot and wrote those recipes. She's passed away recently. Over, she was over 100 years old. She almost 101. You know, she was Armenian. She fled Turkey in the early 20th century, fled Cyprus. An incredible story. And we've got two of her recipes in the book. You know, that is such an honour. And it was so important to me to get these recipes that wouldn't be maybe told otherwise. And, you know, even if whatever, whatever you believe... They are just really great recipes. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I really want to try and do is I find that when I look through maybe for other vegan books, you know, and they all have a place. They all, all book cookbooks have a place on the stands. They all do their own thing. But I felt like sometimes vegan food, there was a lot of effort involved. Mm. And I think I just want to show that actually the simplicity mm. of a lot of these recipes and they don't have to be, they can just be three, four, five ingredients and that's great and they're lovely. So... Mm. Yeah, thank you. I think <laughs> Don't <mean to> cry. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 I think it is. Uh, it, it's a very emotional thing. Bring about, the amount mm. of work that goes into it, as well as trying to juggle you know, everything blooming else that's happening in life. And it sounds yeah. like you've had you know such a time with it as well. We all have, haven't we? Yeah, but you know, it's it is an emotional thing. Bring it, bring, yeah. Bringing it out. Um, yeah, when you say fasting, and to certain people, also when you say vegan, I think it brings up impressions of lack of missing something yeah. of um you know, abstaining in a way which means you, you you're losing out yes and yet that's very much not this because yeah. if you if you took both of those tags off these recipes if you didn't say anything about fasting you didn't say anything yeah. about being vegan you know, for the different perceptions that some people may have about that they are lush oh, the recipes aren't yeah. they there's certainly nothing where you think anything is being held Lacking. back yeah. no and i think that's the thing because they're recip- because they are recipes that exist regardless they weren't created do you know what i mean so they are recipes that are you know decades centuries old and they have to be delicious delicious because that is why you know they were yeah. created as such they we aren't molding them or making them vegan they are vegan yeah. and that is the thing they are you know and I think writing it as someone who is not vegan as well it it really helps in a way because mm-hmm. I have an appreciation for animal you know for uh, animal flavours and fats and dairy and so I'm making the recipes not trying to replicate Certain things, I'm just do, trying to create the best version of themselves mm. without trying to maybe replicate what it might have been had it had bacon in it or mm. chicken in it. You mm. know, like, that is just that. So yeah. it, 
I think writing it as a non-vegan as well, I, you know, I feel like I've got maybe a, 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 a you know, good understanding. Yeah. And, and I, you know, as we were, when we were developing, when I was writing the recipes and I was developing them and testing them at home and, you know, I, we didn't miss it. Sometimes I'd turn to Pete and I'd say, you know, we haven't, we haven't eaten meat for X amount of days right. or, yeah. you know, so. How, um, yeah. is, is fasting a, a strong part of your life? Not just about eating your vegan food, but the fasting in the religious context. I really like to fast. I don't necessarily do it every year. Um, I don't want to get, I don't want to bore you too much with it, but you can't, you, you can't fast if there's certain health problems. Uh-huh. So I'm anemic. My daughter has some blood issues. Like we have, to, you have to be careful because yeah. obviously that is the one thing. So I was vegetarian for 10 years when I was younger and actually I stopped um, for health reasons. I was just very, very anemic. And even now as a meat eater, I, I've had to have iron drips and infusions and stuff. I just It's a challenge, it's a struggle. So I like to try and fast. If I can't do the full fast, I always do the last week or two. Mm-hmm. That, that is very important to me. So the la- the week, or you know, two weeks before Easter, I, could, I know I can do that. Um, I have done the whole time before, but if I can't do the whole time, I will just give up one thing and then do the full fast mm-hmm. the last two weeks. I really like it. I don't feel like it's something you just have to do. I would love to see when the pe- the book comes out, if people buy the book who aren't religious, I-, I just, I would love to try and encourage people to just try it for a week for mm-hmm. no other reason then just to see how you feel. I'm not a diet person. I'm no by no means a diet guru. I don't make any claims. My weight fluctuates. That is life. I like food. However, there is a really interesting feeling about stripping back. And I imagine, you know, so many faiths do a variation of this, of mm-hmm. fasting, of eating in a certain way, whether it's cutting out food or times or, you know, whatever. And there's a reason behind it, isn't there? There's there's a, a sort of grounding feeling, a recentering, a sort of appreciation and I think you don't have to be religious to do that. And I think it's just a nice thing to practice to do. Yeah. I think sometimes in different ways in life, it's quite good just to take a moment. Yeah. And it feels like this is almost sort of, you know, the, the culinary equivalent of let's just take a moment. Yeah. And sort of, you know, reset, rebalance, just, totally. you know, reprioritise if that's you know, the, your take on it and just think a bit differently. Completely. Um, this book, it feels to me, geographically spreads out a little bit further than yes. your previous books. Tell us tell us if that's right. Yes. Tell us about that. 100%. So I'm Greek Cypriot and my knowledge of fasting has been, you know, since I can remember. My my grannies, both my ayahs have always fasted. So it was always part of my world, something I've always been aware of. Um, and then I, it, I became more interested as I worked more with food. I've got an uncle who's a priest. We spoke, speak a lot about Mount Athos, which is... Um, the epicenter of Orthodox faith in Greece, um, a place which frustrates me immensely because women are not allowed. It's so irritating, but there's all these monks, you know, I get it. But it is a fascinating place where all these monks live and they grow everything and they just, it's its incredible. Um, I'm slightly I, obsessed by monks and nuns. Yeah. I think that, I think that well, obviously they're incredible. Yeah. But also I think food-wise what they've given yes. is immense. <gasps> It's, I did I did manage right at the end of the book. The book was about to go to print and I and we just got out of the country. We just got to Cyprus. It was like all the restrictions had just lifted. And I said to my publisher, I was like, look, please just wait. I'm going to Cyprus. I'm going to go and visit some, some um, a monastery, a convent, chatting to these. It was amazing. This, am- this stunning convent, these nuns. You know, they were making us bergamot cordial, which I've got in There's the book. There's the very last recipe the in the book. Very the very last recipe. I love that the nuns closed the book. I the love nun- that. Well, it was because, and also because it literally was the last recipe in to get in. It was like, 
skin of my teeth. I was like, I've got an extra recipe. Hold, hold the printing. Get the nuns in. The nuns need to be in the book. You know, these nuns are amazing. They have all their own olives. Um, it was They make everything themselves. So they fascinate me. And, and I was talking to some monks in my ethos on email, which was very cool. Um, but, you know, as I spoke, looked at the Orthodox Church, it, it isn't just Greece and Cyprus. And it does obviously go all over the world, but it felt very heavy around Eastern Europe, the Middle East and the Mediterranean. Mm. So whilst Greece is, you know, Mount Othus, you've got Ukraine, Russia, Serbia, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt. And, you know, in Egypt, you've got the Coptic Christians, you've got the Maronite monks in Lebanon. I've got Father Augustine on WhatsApp. Oh my goodness, the sweetest man. I've got a recipe of his in there. You know, so I wanted to, I just thought when I did it, I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to tap into all of them. And and as with all foods that sort of travel, that, you know, they, they things like stuffed vine leaves. All those countries have their own version. Some will be with cabbage, some will be with vine leaves, others will be with aubergines and tomatoes, you know. And it is fascinating. And I just was like, I want to follow that journey. I, I could have gone further, but it felt like that part of the world was, was it was hefty. Mm. There was enough there. Um, and being able to speak to people from each place was very important to me. Yeah. And I think it's a lovely way we started this by saying about um, sort of the generosity of spirit. And that comes through as well in the book, I feel, um, not just in the approach to the recipes, but the way that you are incorporating other voices and other food writers. You just mentioned Ukraine and Russia and the two women who are very you know, close to our hearts and certainly yes. at the moment as we um, talk about this at the beginning of March 2022. Olya yeah. Hercules and Alyssa Tomoshkina, you know, yeah. Ukrainian, Russian, and it's uh, they're both in this book. Yes, with their recipes, and it's you know that it's that em- embrace and that support and that love. I think really kind of comes, really comes so, through. Totally, it was so Olya and Alyssa are really dear friends, and you know we had a talk about this just before we started, and again I'm welling up because. Oh, the, you know the state of the world is is horrific and horrifying and so upsetting at the moment and and seeing fr- friends go through this you know and speaking to them about the book you know this was a good year two years ago I spoke to them they were so generous and and I want to know their experience and and speaking to Alyssa and she had a very um similar experience to to me in a way like being you know Russian she was like you know you have these big burly men who most of the year are like meat heavy eating all that rich food but as soon as fasting starts that gets pushed aside they're on there with their beans and and it's the same in Greece and Cyprus you know you have these men with their fags and their coffees and they're there with their souvla and their meat but no 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 once fasting kicks in all of that gets pushed aside for lentils you know it's so interesting and it's it? so interesting and- Georgie, do you feel that's something which is continuing or is as you know, the world changes and modernises and, and becomes you know, more globalised, do you get any sense of that dissipating? It's really funny. I don't... I, I feel if I lived in Cyprus, I'd maybe be able to have a stronger answer for you. I don't think so. I think it's still quite a big deal. Um it still feels, you know, Cyprus at least, I can't speak for all the countries, but it's still a very, very religious country. And it still feels very, you know, I speak to a lot of people here and there and expats and whatever. And they, it still feels like something that is very strongly um, carried out. So I, I think it's still there. I think it will continue. And I think as we know more and more about food and we learn more about our ecosystems and our bodies and health and whatever, I think people will continue to do it f- for whatever reason, even if it's not for faith. Because it's just, 
you know, we're told we should be eating more veg or more, you know, looking outside of X, Y, Z. And and I think that this practice lends itself to, to eating and living that life. So for whatever reason, I, I think and I hope it will continue. Yeah. Favourite recipes is a nightmare question. I don't mind even asking you. Favourite recipes from the book. Go on, give us a couple. Gosh, this is hard. Um... There so it's was, 120. It's like it's, yeah, really, it's, like, it's more yeah. than 100. My goodness. Um, okay, okay. Can I give you a couple? Yeah, go on. Right. So there's one called Rishta, which is I think a, an absolutely stonking weeknight meal. Um, it's lentils cooked um, slowly with um, coriander and cumin, and they become really, really creamy. And towards the end of the cooking, you break in tagliatelle. So whether it's fresh tagliatelle that hasn't got eggs in it or dry tagliatelle. And then that sort of overcooks in it and becomes really, really creamy. But it's got loads of... You almost create a temper in a frying pan with garlic, cumin, coriander, dry fresh. And then you stir it through with lots of lemon. And oh. it is honestly the most... It is so addictive. And my mum's like, are you making it anytime soon? It's so good. <laughs> It's so good. And it's one of the most simple recipes in the book. And I, I think that's a great nice. one. And then there's things like, you know, recipes that I really worked hard to nail. So uh, something that might seem quite simple, like rose petal jam, I, you know, I made several times over to make sure it was the perfect texture. And I, I, I've just given away my last jar to a friend and she she's Greek. And I could just, she was just like, that is absolutely banging. So mm-hmm. there's things like that. And then there's, oh, there's, we spoke earlier about Sharice and her 100-year-old granny there's this recipe for it's called Anusha Boar, um, and it's a pudding, and it's essentially like kind of like a um, a pearl barley rice pudding in a way. Mm-hmm. So you you very slowly you soak and then you very slowly cook the pearl barley, um, which doesn't sound particularly interesting. But what you do is on an, in another pan you warm through honey with lots of nuts and cinnamon and mm-hmm. cloves and dried fruits and rose water, and then you lace that into the pearl barley. It's delicious, but the thing that I love most about that recipe is the story because it's Noah's Ark pudding and it was said to have been the first pudding of all time and on the on the Ark, Noah got everything to throw everything into the pot um, and then it came together as they the rain stopped and they, you know, they land, they came and uh, and then the put and then the, and the Anusha ball was ready. So it's got an amazing story. Yeah. It's as a Dewey, Sharice's uh, 100-year-old granny's recipe who passed away during the, the shooting of the book and it's just got so much to it and it's really really lovely so that one really stands out for me there are so so many Um, sorry I'm just rapping no (laughs) also you are here to talk about it Uh, the out. when's it out Georgie 31st of March 31st of March very soon very soon complete beautiful book and I I do mean beauty it's not only lovely recipes and all the things talked about in terms of stories for anyone who knows your work um, will expect and be gratified to see it is absolutely beautiful yeah. completely sumptuous gorgeous photos beautiful you know for a, a lady whose background's in fine art this yeah. is no surprise at all it oh, is absolutely beautifully you. put together so for all of you listening who love beautiful cookbooks in every way it's a real real gem thank you Angela. um talking of cookbooks i feel we have to give a couple of minutes oh, yeah. at least <laughs> to the great the great cookbook I challenge i have to really control my tongue now <laughs> <laughs> so we are beginning of march um um it's We've got a couple of weeks to go. Two weeks still, left. Two weeks still to go. Yeah. So explain the basic premise to anyone who's missed it and might want to catch up. So it is a um, competition show where um, 
people wrote in who wanted to write a cookbook or had a cookbook idea. So the first three episodes, the first three episodes of the show, sees us interviewing or um, cooks about their ideas. So that so as a panel, I'm a judge. There's three of us. There's the head of Penguin, Michael Joseph Louise. There's Jimmy, who's a food critic, a restaurant critic, and we um, they would come to us with their idea of their cookbook. They'd present a dish to us and they would pitch it to us. So we had three weeks where we saw lots of different contestants, and then we narrowed each week down to just two people, and then. We now have the episodes which are getting those six down to three. And every week they're set a series of challenges. Mm -hmm. And each week one person goes, um, a bit like a lot of other famous cooking shows. And then in the finale, one of the three goes on to win a cookbook deal and, and, and legitimately has won the cookbook deal that person has now written the book it's just been shot wow. and, and it's all systems go wow yeah that is very and it's really fun it's you know d- a lot of you know people who cook a lot probably feel they have a cookbook yeah. in them yeah um, and it must have been it's quite a privilege isn't it to have you know these people coming to you and going there was that lovely lady who wants to do about her Austrian oh, family is that right yes yeah. loved her loved and her. people coming with these things which they they were either or maybe both yeah. either mean something really hugely personally yeah. or they got the right on the prize you know totally and, and and i'm i'm the softest judge of the three i definitely cried <laughs> during filming you could be a little tough as well though darling I can. It's but the edit is quite interesting. I've worked in TV for like literally sixteen years, right? So I know how telly works. Even with my knowledge of telly, I even I because I don't see them before they air, right? Right. Even I'm a bit like. Do you watch it? Yeah, I do. I don't normally watch myself when I do live. If I do Saturday Kitchen, Sunday Brunch, I don't watch it because I know how it's gone because they've done it. Yeah. Right, it's live. But with that one, I do, because I have no idea. It, we overfilmed so much. So, okay, for example, you know when they come down and they bring their dish to us and they pitch their idea? You On TV, you see around two minutes of mm-hmm. us talking to them. Each person got between one to one and a half hours of our time. No. Yeah. Wow. It is, they're still editing. They haven't finished editing the two next two shows because there is so much footage. Wow. We spent so much time with each contestant. So it is kind of heartbreaking in a way that you don't see that we give them all this feedback. Mm. And I mean, it's hilariously edited. Bless Louise. You know, they really have like, like each of her facial expressions. Like I became very close to Louise. We shared a dressing room. I adore her. But you know, editors are editors and they know what they're doing. It feels like they chose who their Simon Callow was. Completely. Cowell, not Callow, someone else entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Simon Cowell. Yeah, yeah, they they decided who who that figure was going to be. A hundred percent. And you know, even with me, like I think this week's episode that's just gone, I, I, there was more of me on it and more sort of maybe like me being a bit more blunt but you know that was that is so heavily edited but yeah I am as well though and you kind of have to be I don't want anyone to go I said to every contestant afterwards you've all got a cookbook in you go away keep doing it keep doing it but you know we did have to pick the ones at the end of the day Louise was putting down however many mm-hmm. tens of thousands of pounds mm-hmm. on this book so we had to find the right person but genuinely and I'm not just saying this to be like some nice nice person they all had a good idea they, they wouldn't have got that far none of them were there as scapegoats like to make like a show of them or joke they all mm. got that far because they had a good idea what do you think makes for a good and what does that even mean cookbook it's a funny one isn't it because if I had the winning answer I would you know, probably have like a really massive house and <laughs> wouldn't have a mortgage. And, you know, so I'm not the most commercial person. That's why me and Louise are different. I write books like Nistissima, which are 
you know, hopefully very beautiful and quite traditional and I guess um, very sort of specific and fascinating. Whereas Louise is much more commercial. She does, you know, Jamie and mm. she's got, you know, people like Rachel Koo who, who are, you know, broader mm. in their appeal. Um, so it is hard to say, but I just... Manny Sweetie talking to the girl who wrote a book about vinegar. So, well, you know. <laughs> but this is it, right? This is what we, you and I have talked about this. You know, there's you kind of have to pick which way you want to go. Are you writing about something from a very factual, fascinating point of view or are you trying to appeal to the masses? You can do both, but it's kind of like you've got to kind of pick which one you want to go for. And... Um, and that's the thing. And I think if you want to write a good cookbook, you know, there's a place for everyone, like I said. But if you really want to get that book done, whatever, you have to try and think of something that hasn't been done before. Mm. And if you're going to do something that has been done before, what is your selling point? And I think that's where we got quite a few people coming to us, which were like, oh, but why? You know, we had a lot of backlash from people saying, why? Everyone keeps saying it's too chefy, it's too chefy. There's nothing wrong with a chefy cookbook at all. But what is your USP? Why is someone going to pick your book to, to learn how to make foams over someone? You know, you just have to find your niche, yeah. your groove. And, yeah. yeah. I think that's really good advice for anyone who's thinking who does, you know, have aspirations of yeah. doing a cookbook. It's find, it's find your way in. Yeah. Isn't it? Why is someone going to part with their 20, 25 yeah. quid oh, yeah. for, your, for your book over someone else's? Yeah. You have written the only book, as far as I'm concerned, and it's incredible, on vinegar. You know, that is an incredible achievement and great book. And, and you know, Nistis is saying, but... Other books, maybe that are a bit more like, say, the vegan, our lovely vegan guy, you know, what could he bring to the vegan scene that maybe hasn't been done? Mm. And that's where you have to work that big harder. Mm. Yeah. And I also always feel that it, you know, making cookbooks is really expensive. Oh, my goodness. And no one owes anyone, you know, just no. the, having it just because that's a nice thing to do no. because you've got you know, you've got the writer, obviously, and yeah. then you've got food stylist and you've got the studio and you've got the photographer and, you know, yeah. and all, the, all the rest of the team, yeah. designers that go in to make it happen. It's the most expensive thing to produce, isn't it? In the book world, I genuinely think it's like, it's one of the most expensive things to produce. Yeah. And the other thing there is you've got that side, but then you've also got the side of, well, if someone's parting with their money to buy your book, where, again, this is kind of edited out the show, which is a shame, but we speak a lot about the writing side of it. Mm. And I kind of wish they included it more because it is a cookery book show, right? But, you know, there were lots of them. I was like, right, okay, that's great. But you want to write a cookbook? You know the best thing you can do? Go and read cookbooks. Mm. Do you You'd feel be surprised? Georgie, that is quite telling, though, in the focus of the industry, that if... Yeah, we, we say about writing a cookbook and yet the writing element, as you say, isn't something which yet, there are episodes to come, that's yet, you know, been really kind of strongly there. Do you feel that is indicative of the way the industry is focusing on things? No, because I think it's, to be honest, in terms of the show, I think it's just more, they had too much footage. Right. So I'm, I think I'm allowed to say this. I hope I am anyway, because I'm not getting in trouble otherwise. Something that was dropped, they couldn't physically fit it into the show last week, because it's like 47 minutes, mm. right? Was Which is real shame, because I think people should have seen this, is a few times in the show, we got complete random home cooks from around the country to cook their recipes. Oh, And wow. it's all on film. So we have like, I think it was last week's show, the six of them, the six recipes, the second of the recipe in the show, was where they were cooked by a complete variety of people around the country. They filmed themselves doing it and then we watched the cooks watch them, the feedback. That's amazing. But they dropped it because they just didn't have time yeah, to yeah, air. And I yeah, think that yeah. was a shame because 
that is something that so when people turn around and say you haven't fo- you're not really understanding if they're writers the genuine side of it we did we really mm. did you know Ian for example the lovely skint roofer you know he's very dyslexic his recipes were inc- incredible he's he does them all by hand there's not one bit of punctuation in his recipe not one it's all capital letters and he does drawings he is unreal he's a great chef he's a great cook yeah. And and Louise was just not faced by that at all because she could see his potential. And I love that. Yeah. I think it's the work of a good publisher to, to, to differentiate between someone whose maybe recipe is too chefy and someone at home will not do it compared to someone like Ian who just needs a bit of work. Yeah. And I think, again, that's bringing us full circle as we sort of get towards the end of this, although obviously because sit here and just nass afraid. <laughs> Ever. Um, is that it's about that embracing thing and that you've got to... Be, you can't have everyone being the same with the same skills and everyone yeah. can do everything because yeah. then you just end up with a load of books which are all pretty much identical. Totally. You've got to find the space, as exactly as you described about, um, is it Ian? Yes. Who, you know, may not come with a conventional set of skills yeah. of being able to kind of, you know, write a recipe. Yeah. But there's something there that's yeah. worth drawing out and 100%. getting to. Totally. And I think that's the, as a you know, a good publisher should see that. And that's the thing with Ian, you know, he, he they, we, on two occasions, his recipes were sent away and cooked by home cooks and they were not phased by any of his, you know, the handwritten, the notepad, you know, they cooked them and what they managed to achieve, not all the recipes came out that well. Yeah, yeah. Well. Because they wouldn't, right? Yeah. And, but, but the times his recipes were sent off, they came out perfect. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. So what's next for lovely Georgina Hayden? No, I'd quite like to just sleep. No, a little don't. break. A little, uh, break. A little break probably would be a bad break. thing. Um, so the book comes out end of this month, which is really exciting, and just so many lovely things around book release from talks at my local church to doing book events at lovely bookshops around the country um doing more live tv which i really enjoy um so all of that stuff which comes with a book coming out which is really really fun um i did sign another two book deal so i probably at some point in the future need to start thinking about book four which is who knows um and just hopefully to write some more columns and and just i just love you know like i always i just love it all and anything that gets thrown at me, you know, like I say, I don't really have a plan, but um, hopefully do some festivals in the summer because yeah. they're fun, aren't they? It's nice to have them back too. I, I really hope I get to do some festivals this summer. I think it'll be such a good fun just being out with people. Yeah. You know, I feel really lucky my book's coming out this year. The, you know, people that have had books come out the last few years all on Zoom. How so crap hard. is that? So really looking forward to all the in-person stuff. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. The, and the partying. <laughs> <laughs> um, complete joy as ever to see you a joy to have this book in my life Um, thanks ever so much for joining us thank you for having me this has been heaven thanks for joining us today we'll be back with more Borough Talks soon a reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week for those who can't make it down here you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market online with nationwide delivery You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market Traders. 